Hello and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast. It is episode number 18 in our big Bible question of the day. Does celebration, partying, and unbridled joy please the Lord? Or should we always be serious-minded? I want to give a shout-out to my friend Ben Cogswell for leaving a very nice and encouraging review on iTunes. Thank you so much, Ben. If you guys have a Bible question you want me to cover, just go to our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com, and comment on any post. I'll get the comment, I'll see it, and I'll add that to the file as a question we will cover at some point. Again, that's BibleReadingPodcast.com. I do want to tell you we're going to try to keep the show under 30 minutes today, but I, I do, I've got to give you one big encouragement. We're 18 days in. The goal of this show is not that you would read the whole Bible in a year, not that you would go back and listen to all 18 episodes if this is your first one and you've missed a lot. Man, I hope you do that. I hope you listen to all the episodes. That'd be great. I hope you read the whole Bible in the year. That'd be great. It's great. But you know what? There's not a huge reward in heaven for that. And nobody's going to pin a gold star to your lapel if you complete it. My goal And my goal for you guys that are listening to this all around wherever you are is that we would develop a habit and a lifestyle of daily Bible reading. And that's the thing, man. That's the the thing. We want to hear the word of God every day. So if, if missing a couple of days sort of snows you down and overwhelms you and you're thinking, oh my gosh, I can't keep doing this. I just keep getting behind. Lose that mindset. The mindset is not we have to catch up at any cost. Catch up if you can. That's great. The mindset is daily feasts of the Word of God. And today we're going to be in Genesis 19, Nehemiah 8, Matthew 18, and Acts 18. And one thing I'm learning as we venture through reading four chapters of the Bible together every day, there will always be something important to talk about. There's way too many important things to talk about in four chapters of the Bible, given that this podcast is supposed to stay under 40 minutes an episode and today under 30 minutes. Because we will be reading the New Testament together twice in 2020, I'm generally preferring Old Testament passages at this point in the year. That means we're going to miss out for today on a deep discussion about servanthood being the key to greatness. We're going to miss out on one of my favorite passages in Matthew 18 on conflict avoidance and peacemaking. But you know what? I don't have to discuss that with you for it to be fruitful for you. You're going to hear it from Jesus, and that's like a billion times better. We're going to miss out on a talk about the absolute necessity of total forgiveness, and but, but you're still going to hear that from Jesus. We're going to miss out on talking about who exactly Apollos was, but you'll get the idea. Don't worry. We're going to hit all those topics at some point this year. But today's topic might be a little surprising, a little unexpected. At least I hope it's a bit of a twist. Many people consider Christians to be stoic, staid, stern, stodgy, and stolid. And I sort of used all of my uh, ST adjectives there. But there is most assuredly a call in Scripture for Christians to be sober-minded, 
because as Peter tells us, First Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded and alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. But our reading in Nehemiah is going to awaken us to another aspect of the call of God. And this is Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people gathered together at the square in front of the water gate. They asked the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had given Israel. On the first day of the seventh month, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. While he was facing the square in front of the water gate, he read out of it from daybreak until noon before the men, the women, and those who could understand. All All the people listened attentively to the book of the law. The scribe Ezra stood on a high wooden platform made for this purpose. Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Maasiah stood beside him on his right, and to his left were Padiah, Mishael, Malkajai, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. Ezra opened the book in full view of all the people, since he was elevated above everyone. As he opened it, all the people stood up. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and with their hands uplifted, all the people said, Amen! Amen! Then they knelt low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbathai, Hodiah, Masai, Kelida, Azariah, Jotzebed, Hanan, and Peliah, who were Levites, explained the law to the people as they stood in their places. They read out of the book of the law of God, translating and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was read. This is like an early version of preaching. Verse 9, Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to all of them, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go and eat what is rich, drink what is sweet, and send portions to those who have nothing prepared, since today is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, because uh, the joy of the Lord is your strength. I'm going to read that again because it's just so fantastic. Do not grieve because the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Levites quieted all the people saying, be still since today is holy. Don't grieve. Then all the people began to eat and drink, send portions and have a great celebration because they had understood the words that were explained to them. On the second day, the family heads of all the people, along with the priests and Levites, assembled before the scribe Ezra to study the words of the law. They found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the Israelites should dwell in shelters during the festival of the seventh month. So they proclaimed and spread this news throughout their towns and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the hill country and bring back branches of olive, 
wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make shelters, just as it is written. The people went back, went out, brought back branches, and made shelters for themselves on each of their rooftops and courtyards, the court of the house of God, the square by the water gate, and the square by the Ephraim gate. The whole community that had returned from exile made shelters and lived in them. The Israelites had not celebrated like this from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until the that day, and there was tremendous joy. Ezra read out of the book of the law every day from the first day to the last. The Israelites celebrated the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day there was an assembly according to the ordinance. Hallelujah. What a fantastically encouraging passage. You kind of might have the impression as I did for a while, that Jesus was a kind of dour, saddish kind of guy. I remember my first exposure to seeing Jesus portrayed outside the Bible. It was a movie my parents took us to when I was a kid. Uh, I think it was from the 70s called Jesus of Nazareth. I don't hardly remember anything from the movie except that Jesus had long hair, which he almost certainly did not have long hair in real life. And the actor playing Jesus was incredibly somber. No smiles or anything like that, at least not that I can remember. Now, while it's absolutely true that Jesus was a man of sorrows, as Isaiah 53 verse 3 tells us, I believe that was not a description of the entirety of Jesus's life and his attitude, but rather it was a description, if you read it in context, of his death on the cross, paying the price for our sins. In Jesus's ministry, you see a ton of evidence that he was a man of joy. He was a man of kindness. He was a man of love and openness. I don't really believe a sour and somber person would be the type to tell the disciples more than once to allow the children to come up close and be around him. Now, it's one of the reasons why I'm such a big fan of uh, the videos about Jesus that were word for word from the scriptures. I think they were released in the 90s called the Matthew videos. That portrayal of Jesus showed joy and warmth and yeah, sadness and devastation when he was crucified. But that was I think uh, a portrayal of Jesus that is the best job I've ever seen in any film or movie in keeping with the biblical portrayal of Jesus. Now, at some point, we'll probably talk about whether or not those sorts of things are uh, second commandment violations, but today is not that day. So are we to party all the time and always be overflowing with joy and happiness so that we're like uh, the most happy church greeter in the world, always smiling so that no grief is ever seen on our faces because it's a sin to be sad as the people were kind of commanded in Nehemiah 8? And the answer is, of course not. We as Christians, it seems like we can take two polar opposite views of this issue. One view says it's almost always a sin to be depressed and sad, which is not a biblical view. And the other view sort of just views our duty as Christians to be serious and dour and sort of almost sour all of the time, which I don't think is biblical either. Here's the thing. Jesus wept. 
He wept when his friend Lazarus died, even though I'm sure he was fully aware Lazarus was about to be resurrected. And that means we're going to weep when things happen to us. If you think the Christian life is to be free from suffering and weeping, you may have just bought into the kind of fake Christianity that is peddled by popular word faith style teachers on television, which is not really biblical Christianity. Here's the thing. Jesus promises his followers, like it's a promise, that we will have tribulation in the world. You see that in John 16, 33. But he also says, take heart. He's overcome the world. We're also told in Revelation 21, 4, that God will wipe the tears from every believer when Jesus returns for the second time. That's a comforting truth on the one hand, but it also indicates that some of us will be crying right up until the second coming. And that's reality. That's the reality I see as I live my life. And that's the reality as scripture portrays it. As the book of wisdom, Ecclesiastes teaches us, our lives will sometimes contain weeping and mourning. And sometimes they'll be filled with dancing and rejoicing. And we ought to embrace both of those things. Because there is a time to weep and a time to laugh. There is a time to mourn and a time to dance. And I think Paul gives us good wisdom about this in Romans chapter 12. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. That's the thing. Friends, we're called to be people of harmony, and that means that we will sometimes be weeping, sometimes we'll be rejoicing, but in the body of Christ and filled with the Spirit of Christ, we're never going to do either one of those things alone because we're not independent. We're part of a body, and the Spirit of Jesus indwells all who have wholeheartedly believed in faith that Jesus died on the cross for them. And that's good news. We're never alone. Sometimes we'll weep. Sometimes we'll mourn. And I hope that this is an encouraging picture to you of what Christian worship in church should often be, which is listening to the Word of God with celebration and rejoicing and, yes, eating. I think the covered dish Baptists of the South have kind of nailed it there. They're just repeating Nehemiah chapter 8, and to that I say, good job. Now let's get into the rest of the word. Genesis chapter 19, verse 1. The two angels entered Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in Sodom's gateway. When Lot saw them, he got up to meet them. He bowed with his face to the ground and said, My lords, turn aside to your servant's house, wash your feet, and spend the night. Then you can get up early and go on your way. No, they said. We would rather spend the night in the square. But he urged them so strongly that they followed him and went into his house. He prepared a feast and baked unleavened bread for them, and they ate. Before they went to bed, the men of the city of Sodom, both young and old, the whole population surrounded the house, and they called out to Lot and said, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Send them out to us so we can have sex with them. Lot went out to them at the entrance and shut the door behind him. He said, Don't do this evil, my brothers. Look, I've got two daughters who haven't been intimate with a man. I'll bring them out to you, and you can do whatever you want to them. However, don't do anything to these men, because they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of the way, they said, adding, This one came here as an alien, but now he's acting like a judge. 
now will do more harm to you than to them. And they put pressure on Lot and came up to break down the door. But the angels reached out, brought Lot into the house with them, and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the entrance of the house, both young and old, with blindness so that they were unable to find the entrance. Then the angels said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, a son-in-law, your sons and daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people is so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were going to marry his daughters. Get up, he said, get out of this place for the Lord's about to destroy this city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. At daybreak, the angels urged Lot on, get up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. Because of the Lord's compassion for him, the men grabbed his hand, his wife's hand, in the hands of his two daughters, and they brought him out and left him outside the city. As soon as the angels got them outside, one of them said, Run for your lives. Don't look back and don't don't stop anywhere on the plain. Run to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, No, my lords, please, your ser- your servant has found favor with you, and you've shown great kindness to me, saving my life. But I can't run to the mountains. The disaster will overtake me, and I'll die. Look, this town is close enough for me to flee to. It's a small place. Just let me run to it. It's only a small place in it, isn't it, so that I can survive? And he said to him, All right. I'll grant your request about this matter too, and we will not demolish the town you mentioned. Hurry, run to it, for I cannot do anything until you get there. Therefore, the name of the city is Zoar. The sun had risen over the land when Lot reached Zoar. Then out of the sky, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, burning sulfur from the Lord. He demolished those cities, the entire plains, all the inhabitants of the city, and whatever grew on the ground. But Lot's wife looked back and became a pillar of salt. Early in the morning, Abraham went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and all the land of the plain, and he saw that smoke was going up from the land like the smoke of a furnace. So it was. When God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and brought Lot out of the middle of the upheaval when he demolished the cities where Lot had lived. Lot departed from Zoar and lived in the mountains along with his two daughters because he was afraid to live in Zoar. Instead, he and his two daughters lived in a cave. Then the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man in the land to sleep with us, as is the custom of all the land. Come, let's get our father to drink wine so that we can sleep with him and preserve our father's line. So they got their father to drink wine that night, and the firstborn came and slept with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she got up. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Look, I slept with my father's last night. Let's get him to drink wine again tonight so you can go sleep with him and we can preserve our father's line. That night, they again got their father to drink wine and the younger went and slept with him. He did not know when she lay down or when she got up. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The firstborn gave birth to a son and named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites of today. The younger also gave birth to a son, and she named him Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites of today. Okay, well, oh my gosh. There is some crazy things that happens in Genesis 19. And 
for more than one reason <laughs> and to keep this a clean podcast that is mostly safe for the family. I'm not going to talk about them a lot, but I will say this. I believe the Bible teaches us that the angels saved Lot on account of Abraham, not because Lot was a good guy. This business of Lot offering up his daughters is absurd. And here's why he did that. He did it because he's a selfish jerk. Because the thing about the way hospitality works in the Middle East is it would have been shame on Lot if these men of the city had raped his guests. In other words, it would have caused other people to look down on Lot. And that appears to be Lot's big concern. His big concern was his stupid reputation, not his precious daughters. Now, towards the end of the chapter, you can kind of see they're a bit of a mess too, without saying too much. But man, Lot is maybe one of the worst examples of a dad in scripture. As the father of four daughters, I this, this sort of makes my blood boil. I can't imagine it. And just comfort yourself with this thought that this passage seems to indicate that God had mercy on Lot who didn't deserve it for the sake of Abraham, not because Lot earned it. That's how grace works. And this is just a frustrating passage, and I think it's meant to be a frustrating passage. I do not believe the Bible holds up to us Lot as a man of decency, but rather as a train wreck. Matthew chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, So who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child and had him stand among them. Truly, I tell you, he said, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one child like this in my name welcomes me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses will inevitably come, but woe to that person by whom the offense comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hellfire. See to it that you don't despise one of these little ones, because I tell you that in heaven their angels continually view the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If someone has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, won't he leave the ninety-nine on the hillside and go and search for the stray? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he rejoices over that sheep more than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. In the same way, it is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones perish. 
If your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others along with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact will be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Again, Truly, I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered gathered together in my name, I am there among them. Then Peter approached him and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus replied, but seventy times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed ten thousand talents was brought before him. Since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the servant fell face down before him and said, Be patient with me and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that servant had compassion, released him, and forgave him the loan. That servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him, started choking him, and said, Pay what you owe. At this, his fellow servant fell down and began begging him, Be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he was not willing. Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. When the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then, after he had summoned him, his master said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And because he was angry, His master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So also, my heavenly Father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. Acts chapter 18 verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. After this, he left Athens and went to Corinth, where he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul came to them, and since they were of the same occupation, tent makers by trade, he stayed with them and worked. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself to preaching the word and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. When they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his clothes and told them, Your blood is on your own hands. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord along with his whole household. Many of the Corinthians, when they heard, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in night vision, Don't be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent, for I am with you and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you because I have many people in this city. He stayed there a year and a half teaching the word of God among them. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack against Paul and brought him to the tribunal. This man, they said, 
is persuading people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. As Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or of a serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you Jews. But if these questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be the judge of such things. So he drove them from the tribunal, and they seized Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But none of these things mattered to Gallio. After staying for some time, Paul said farewell to the brothers and sisters and sailed away to Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. He shaved his head at Centria because of a vow he had taken. When they reached Ephesus, he left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and debated with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer time, he declined, but he said farewell and added, I will come back to you again if God wills. Then he set sail from Ephesus. On landing at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church, then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he set out, traveling through one place after another in the region of Galatia, Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native Alexandrian, an eloquent man who was competent in the use of the scriptures, arrived in Ephesus. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately about Jesus, although he knew only John's baptism. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. After Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. When he wanted to cross over to Achaia, the brothers and sisters wrote to the disciples to welcome them. him. After he arrived, he was of great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating through the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah." Amen. So great passages today, lots of controversy and things to scratch your head and things to think about. But I pray that the word of God would stick in you, that it would encourage you, that it would cause your heart to rejoice and your eyes would turn to Jesus. We'll be back here tomorrow. Between now and then, check out our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Godspeed.